1857, there was a young man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. Jeremiah lived in the city of New York, and he was burdened and broken over the condition and the lostness of his city. So one afternoon, he found himself in the back room of his small country church where he attended, and he got down on his knees, and he cried out from his heart before the Lord. And this was the cry that he made out before the Lord, and it was, Lord, what would you have me to do? And while he was there on his knees, the Lord birthed in him a vision that he would host a one-hour prayer meeting that would take place on September 23rd, 1857. That prayer meeting was to last for an hour, and it was to be for all businessmen and businesswomen in New York that were burdened over the lostness of their city. So he did what you and I would probably do. He went out and made some flyers, made some posters, and put them up all over town. He told his friends and his neighbors and tried to promote it as best as he could. And my guess is on January 23rd, when he woke up that morning, he was a little anxious, a little excited. And so in my imagination, he may showed up a little bit early to that place of business, and maybe he set up some chairs, and he was just excited about what was going to take place. Well, at noon... He was still the only person there. But it didn't stop him from praying. He began to pray with all of his heart, Lord, would you move in a fresh way in New York City? 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, he's still all alone there praying. Finally, a little after a half an hour, someone showed up. Five minutes later, another person showed up. By the end of that one hour of prayer, there were a total of six people who were in attendance of that prayer meeting. Now again, for, for you and I, maybe just me, at some point we would probably say, well, maybe I didn't hear clearly from the Lord on this. Maybe this really isn't what the Lord wanted me to do, because if he did, surely more than six people would have showed up. Or maybe we would blame it on our marketing campaign, our strategy. Maybe we didn't get the word out enough, and that's the reason that people aren't attending. But not Jeremiah in fear. He was determined that this is what the Lord wanted from him. So he showed up the next week at the same place. One week later for a one-hour prayer meeting, and 20 people showed up. The next week he did it again, and 40 people showed up. He kept doing this. By the time it was three months later, January 1858, people were gathering on three floors of the same building, crying out to God for an hour with the same cry. God, would you move in a fresh and powerful way in our city? In March of 1858, six months after that very first prayer meeting, 6,000 people gathered, listen to me, every single day in New York City to beg God to move in their city. But here's where it gets even better. It had now moved beyond New York City, and now there were 6,000 people in Pittsburgh. There were 2,000 people in Chicago. There were 4,000 people in Philadelphia. Meetings were being held all across our country, in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Cincinnati, New Orleans, and even in our own state in Mobile, Alabama. By May of 1858, it's estimated that 50 thousand men and women had trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and had been baptized. There's a newspaper that you can read it. It's history. 
that recorded that there were some, some cities or towns in New York and New England state that the, in these states in New England, that the whole city, the whole town, they could not find one person who didn't profess to be a follower, a believer of Jesus Christ. Not one lost person. Historians, when they're writing about this historical uh, event, they said that there was a period of months in 1858 that 50,000 people a week were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. So much so that by early 1859, 18 months after that very first prayer meeting, there was a report that over one million Americans had given their lives to Jesus Christ. Now to try to put that in perspective, in 1859, I went back and looked at the census report. There were only 30 million people living in America at that time. You see, Blake, why are you starting your sermon this way? What's the point in this? Well, that period of time from 1857 to 1859 is the last recorded undeniable move of God in the United States of America. Over 160 years since we've seen God move like that. Some people call it the third great awakening. And some people would argue and they'd say, well, we've seen moves of God in our country. And believe me, there's no doubt we've seen moves of God. But talking about that kind of, of, of experiences across denominational barriers, barriers, you have to go back to the period of 1857 to 1859. And let me just for a second kind of pull the curtain back on where I am in my own life and share with you where I am in my heart. Church family, I'm hungry to see a move of God like that again. I'm hungry to see God move in our country like he did back then. I'm not interested in just going to church to say we can check it off our list and that, that's what we're supposed to do on Sunday mornings. I'm interested in seeing God move in the hearts and lives of our people. I'm not interested in the Americanized brand that we've tried to, to make the Bible, we've tried to make Christianity so stale and make it fit our own culture and standards. There's a burden in my soul to see God move First and foremost in my life, secondly in our church, but also in our city, in our country. And understand when I say these things, I'm not saying I, I want God to do something out there. I want it to begin in, in my life. I want this revival to begin in my family. I've got two small children. I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I beg that God would do a work in my family's life, that God would do a work like that today, that they don't have to read about what a fresh move of God looks like. They don't have to ask what it looks like. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to watch a movie, but they experience what the move of God looks like in their own family's life. For our church, I want God to move like that. Understand, I'm not talking about some manufactured feel-good movement that we can have smoke and lights and lasers and music that makes you feel good about yourself. I'm talking about that we would long for a genuine life transformation. Only God could have done that movement in our church. See, let me tell you what I, what I don't really care for, what I don't long for. I don't long for the day when people will say, man, you want to hear good music, you want to hear good preaching, you need to go to First Baptist Church Decatur. That, that's great, but that's not my heart's desire. 
What my heart's true desire, though, is that if people, when they're talking about our church, they say, you want to see what God does with a group of people that they lay down their pride, they lay down whatever they're going through, and they're totally passionate, they're totally consumed with God using them to further his kingdom? Do you want to feel what the presence of God looks like? Do you want to see God moving? You need to get to First Baptist Church to cater because they are committed, they are praying, and God is using that church in a way that I've never seen before. We need God in our church. We also need Him in our country today. You can turn on the news and see all of the the division, whether it's racial tension, whether it's cultural division, whether it's wars or persecution, whether it's sex trafficking. There's all sorts of, of problems that we're facing today. But church, it's time that for those of us here today, that if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, it's time that we stop talking about politics and we start getting broken over a lost world that is without hope, without Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've got to understand that our solution, it is not coming from Washington, D.C., I don't care whatever side of the political spectrum we fall on. There's no president, there's no politician, there's no piece of legislation that will give us the hope that our country needs today. The hope for our country, the answer for our country does not come from Washington. It comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you agree with me on that, church? That's where our hope comes from. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics. We should. But we got to stop thinking that once this happens in Washington, then finally a revival is going to take place. No, revival will take place when we, as the people of God, when first we're broken over our sin, and then we commit that we are going to be on our knees begging God to use us in this broken world. Why do I believe that? Why do I believe that the answer doesn't come from Washington, but it comes from the local church and when we are broken over our sin? Church, because we know that when God moves, people are changed. When God's Spirit moves, people are changed. And they're changed how? From the inside out. It's real, genuine transformation. And here's some good news for you. The good news is that God wants to move through his people. God's not up in heaven hiding him saying, well, if you say this three times and you go to church ten times and you give the right, then no, no, no. God wants to move through his people. We just need to get on the same page as God. We see it in the prophet Isaiah. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64.1. He said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might what? What's that next word? Quake. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Have we become so flippant before a holy God? Have we made him our best friend that we can just slap him on the back and call him the man upstairs? That we no longer quake at the presence of God. We have an example of what this looks like in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 1 as we continue our, the second part of our series of Acts. And we see how the story continues after the resurrection of Jesus. We began last week in Acts chapter 1. We got through verse 6. And this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 8 through 14. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me today. What I hope that we will do this morning is that we will look for some characteristics of people when God moves. What are some characteristics that we can learn from this passage when God moves? Now understand, 
I'm not saying that there's a formula here. I'm not saying that you can look in the Bible and find these two to three steps and just plug and play, and all of a sudden we can manipulate God into moving. All we got to do is follow, and that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that we can look at the pages of Scripture and we can learn there are some principles, there are some characteristics that we can see here and that should God in His goodness, should God in His mercy, should God in His complete control and sovereignty, should He decide to bless us and pour out His Spirit in a new and a fresh way in our church that as so many have said before, that we can have ourselves up and we're ready to blow, we're ready to go right when His Spirit does blow on us. So let's try to uncover just one principle this morning, and we're going to see that when God moves, first of all, His people are desperate. Let me set the scene for you before we jump into our our passage here. In in Acts chapter 1, we know that the disciples have been with Jesus, and His ministry lasted for about three and a half years. They had heard His teachings, they had seen His miracles, and He had already died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. He had already been buried in the tomb. He was resurrected. And remember, as we studied last week, that he he was on the earth after his resurrection for 40 days. He appeared to the disciples, but also Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to over 500 people. So all of this had happened. And when we're picking up the scene here in verse 8, Jesus gathers his disciples and they're on a hillside. And this is the message that he shares with them. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Right there in verse 8, he says, listen, I'm about to move, disciples. My spirit's about to move, and here's how I'm going to move. I'm going to move through you. I'm choosing you to be the instruments to carry my message here. Now let's skip ahead and let's look at verses 12 through 14. We're going to come back and look at 9 and 11. But look at verses 12 through 14. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to, up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You remember I shared with you last week that many people don't think that the brothers of Jesus claim that he was the Messiah, but now they're there worshiping Jesus. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. What I want you to see here is that when God moves, his people get desperate. You see it here in these verses in a couple of ways. The first way we see it is they had an attitude of desperation. They had an attitude of desperation. The people, they had a passion. It was their desire for God to move. They were hungry for God to move. It says there in verse 14, it says they were all with what? With one accord. That's a radical statement right there. That they all, some some translations say with one mind. That rules out a majority of churches in America right there. To say they were all with one mind right there together. Now, most of you know that I had several years of seminary. I went to my, I had undergraduate, then I went to seminary when I got my doctorate. I, I want to brag and show you how much Greek I learned in my seminary. Um, that word all there, you know what it means in Greek? 
all. That's what it means. Aren't you glad you have such an intellectual pastor here? That word all, it means they were all with one accord. Doesn't mean some, doesn't mean most. It means every single one of them, they were of the same mind. That word mind or accord, it literally means will or passion or thought. They had all wrapped their hearts around the exact same thing. What was it? Remember verse 8, they had heard God move and God had said, this is how I'm going to move. I'm going to move by using who? By moving by using you. And then all of them collectively, they came together and they said, guys, listen, this is so much bigger than anything that we can do of ourselves. This is so much bigger than us individually. So much so that I don't care what I have to sacrifice. I don't care what I have to lay on the altar. I don't care what offense I have to get over. I don't care whatever the Lord is asking me. I'm laying it all on the line. I'm all in. They all wrapped their hearts, their mind, their will. They wrapped all of it around one single thing, that that was that God was going to move, and they were passionate about it. The people in Acts, they said, God's about to do something that's so much bigger here. God desires to move. Guys, this is something worthy of us uniting our hearts together, putting aside our differences, and let's rally towards, let's run towards what God wants to do. Let's make our story part of his story because it's so much greater than whatever we had in mind that we were going to make of our lives. But you see, here's the sad reality. The sad reality is that in America today, The American church has the, I said the word tendency, to be too content with our comfortable lives. We'll follow Jesus. Just don't make us uncomfortable. Don't ask too much of us. Don't disrupt our lifestyle. Don't disrupt what we have planned, our hopes and dreams. And and in our contemporary mindsets, in our churches, we say, "We'll, we'll come, but make sure that worship service makes me feel better when I leave. Make sure that it's all about me and meets my needs. And because of that, in so many churches today, we no longer have a desperation. We no longer have a passion to see God move in our own lives, much less our family. We don't have a desperation that, God, we so deeply desire for you to move in our church, for you to move in our city, for you to move in our country. See, my fear is we don't even need God anymore today. We've got it all figured out. We can, we can bring a worship service together without the Holy Spirit being a part of it, and we can leave, and sadly, so many of us wouldn't even know the difference. Just think about your own life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, by the way. How many of us this morning when we got up, did we expect that when we came together as the body of Christ at 1030 on 123 Church Street, that we were expecting to meet with God? Or how many of us were expecting to go to church? To sit in our pews and to be a spectator so that when we go to lunch, we can say, oh, that was a good sermon. Oh, I liked that song. I didn't like that song. But instead of meeting God, we came as spectators. When God moves, His people are desperate. Listen to this quote from the pastor of of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. He said this, 
I sometimes wonder if the early Christians were around today, would they even recognize what we call Christianity? Our version is blander, almost totally intellectual in nature. And listen to this next phrase, and devoid of the Holy Spirit power. The early church regularly experienced everything we read about the church in the New Testament centered on what? On the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of that Holy Spirit working in the hearts of Christian believers. Sadly, for many of us, this has not been our experience. I believe it's time, he says, to return to the kind of faith that we see in the New Testament church. They believed in Christ's word. They expected it. They expected the Spirit to do great things, and He came through as He promised. And I love this last phrase. He will do the same for us today. But here's the question we must answer. Do we collectively as a church family, do we have a passion for God to move? Is it even on our radar? Or have we begun to accept the bland everyday life of normal American Christianity. The first thing we see is that they had an attitude of desperation. They had a passion for God to move. But then the second thing that we see is there was an act of desperation. They didn't just stop with the attitude. Then they moved it to action. They, the people, they prayed for God to move. They went beyond just wanting it. They prayed for it. They begged that God would move in their church, that God would move in their midst. In verse 14, if you go back to that, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to, what's that next word, to prayer. You look all throughout the New Testament church, the one thing that saturated every New Testament church was prayer. And what is prayer all about? What does prayer do? Prayer expresses our total desperation for God. Let me prove to you what that means. When do you pray the most? Can I answer that for you? Probably when you're desperate. Probably when you get some news and you think, oh man, the first response is that we turn to prayer. If tomorrow, if you and I were to show up at work and our boss were to tell us, I'm sorry, but this is your last day here. You won't have a job tomorrow. You know what each and every one of us just became? Prayer warriors, right? We're desperate. Not only are we prayer warriors, then we, we get out our iPhone, we send out an email, a, a text to everyone we know, we call our small group, we call all our friends, and we say, man, without God, we don't stand to hope. We are desperate. We desperately need God to move. We can't do anything without Him. Here's the reality. The reality is that we need God like that every single day of our lives. The problem is we just don't realize it. We don't live our lives in that reality because when we're desperate, we pray. And the people in Acts, they were desperate. Let me set the scene for you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is a popular verse. You've heard it all, all throughout if you've been in church through many sermons. In fact, that's the, the, the verse that we use for our over and above missions offering. And we're going to talk about that next week and how we, we call it our Acts 1 8 offering because it's where we want the, the monies that people give to the Lord and missions to be used here and all over, all over the world. But Jesus at this point in Acts 1 8, he tells his disciples, he says, guys, lean in. 
I want to tell you something. You've been with me for three and a half years, and now I'm about to give you the plan. I'm about to share with you what my desire is for you. I want you, first of all, to go back to Jerusalem. Now, at that point, I think that he must have lost some of them. What had just happened 40 days prior to where we were in Jerusalem? The crucifixion. What did the disciples run from when Jesus was crucified? They were afraid because they knew that those in Jerusalem, not only did they hate Jesus, they hated Christianity and they wanted to stamp out any form of Christianity. And so now, Jesus, you're telling me you want us to go back to where they hate us? That's where we're going to start? He said, all right, lean in. I'm not done yet. I want you to start by going back to where they hate you. But it doesn't end there. Then I want you to go forward. Then I want you to go to Judea and Samaria, where what? Where you hate them. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The Jews like the Samaritans? Not at all. In history, that says they called them, the Jewish people called the, the Samaritans the dogs of society. So Jesus, listen, guys, lean in, lean in. Here's the plan. First of all, you're going to go back to where they hate you. Then you're going to go back to where you hate them. And it gets even better than that. I'm not done yet. After you do all those things, there's one more thing. I want you to go to places you don't even know they exist. Not only do you not even know these places exist, you don't even know how to get there. You don't have an iPhone. You don't have GPS. You don't have transportation. You don't have social media. But that's how I want you to, to do all that. So first of all, go to where they hate you. Then go to where you hate them. Then go to places you don't know how to get to. And then what happens? Jesus starts floating up. He's gone. Here's the plan. All right, boom. He starts floating. You say, I don't believe that. Look at, look at this. Look at verse 10. After he said that, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went up, behold, two men standing there in white robes. All of a sudden, Jesus, he's taken up in verse 9, and he's taken up before them. And I have to imagine, what did that scene look like? Do you think the disciples are looking at it and saying, whoa, 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 did you just see what I just saw? Did what I think happened, did that really, he just gave us the plan and now they're looking up and they're gazing up in heaven and saying, what just happened here? So much so that in verse 10, we see that God tells his angels, hey, you better get down there because I don't know how long they're going to be staring in the sky. They might still be there if God didn't send his angels down there. So he sends the angels down and says, disciples, why do you keep staring into heaven? Go get to work. You just heard the plan. He said, Blake, you're making that up. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, And the angel said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And then the last part of verse 11. Everything changes with this one sentence. The last part of verse 11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, what happens? He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Angel says, hey guys, look, you just saw Jesus go up into the clouds. I got good news for you. There's a day coming that the same way that he went through those clouds, there's a day coming that he's going to come back through those clouds. So at first, they're, they're, I think of a little kid, you know, when the balloon goes up in the sky and you just stare there until you can't see it any longer. I wonder, is that what they were doing? But then... They begin to understand. It's all part of God's plan. He wants us to get to work, so what do they do? They run back to Jerusalem. 
They run with their hearts united. They run with one accord. And in verse 14, it says, once they got to Jerusalem, they organized some committees and they said, okay, let's get this committee and you're going to do this and let's orchestrate how God's going to work. Is that right? Answer is no. It's not what my translation says. It doesn't say they organized a committee. It doesn't say they had several business meetings. No, it says that when this happened, it says that they went into the upper room, they fell on their knees before God, and they said, God, if you're not who you say you are, we are hopeless. God, if you don't do what you said you're going to do, we are without hope. We don't have power. We don't have resources. We don't have money. We don't have anything. All we have is your assurance that you are going to send your, your presence and your spirit is going to empower us to accomplish what you want us to do. And then they refuse to let go of God until he moved. And what did he do? God moved, didn't he? He moved in such a powerful way that God used these men and these women and turned the world upside down. So much so that in 2018, you and I are sitting here in these pews, or for those of you that like those comfortable seats in the balcony, in the balcony, because God moved in a mighty way. Listen to me. If you dig deep enough into any revival, into any move of God that happened, whether it was in a church, whether it was in a city, whether it was in a state, you'll find one common denominator. The one thing that you will find behind that great revival is men and women that were on their knees before God crying out to God, saying, God, I'm not letting go until you move. You may hear about the preacher. You may hear about the music. You may hear about all the theatrics that were involved behind it. But I think God used the prayer warrior. You may not have any books written about him. You may not have you know, a, a movie made about him. But they're so instrumental into using what God did. Listen to this quote by a theologian a long time ago, Andrew Murray. He says, God rules the world and His church through, listen, through the prayers of His people. That God should have made the extension of His kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of His people to pray is a stupendous mystery. And yet what? An absolute certainty. God calls for intercessors. This means God calls for people to make their um, request known to Him. In His grace, He has made His work dependent on them, dependent on their prayers. In these last four words, He waits for them. He moves when his people get desperate. So church family, my question for us this morning is simply one simple question. What are we desperate for? What is it that we say, God, if you don't do anything else, this is what we are desperate for.
There's one thought all week long that I couldn't get out of my head as I was preparing this message. And the one thought that still today gets me so excited is the thought of this. I don't know how many people are here this morning, the five or 600 people in the sanctuary. What would happen if five to 600 people today said, God, we're desperate for you to move. We're desperate for you to move in a real and fresh way, so much so that we can't even control it. We promise we won't take any of the credit. We won't take any of the glory. But what would happen if we united our hearts, our mind, our will on this one thing? God, we're desperate for you to move. We're passionate about it. And we are going to get on our knees And we're not going to let go until you move. Is there a Jeremiah land fear here in our congregation? Maybe they're not even in this building. Maybe they're at Riverside. Maybe it's a homebound member. But will we not neglect the power of prayer? Will we get to the point that we'll say, you know what? Coming to church just to say I've done it and that's what I'm supposed to do on Sunday. That's not enough anymore. We want to see God move, not just in our church, but in our city. We want to see revival take place. Are you passionate about God moving? Is it even on our radar today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We come before you now and we admit our complete and total dependence upon you. We know that if it weren't for your grace that we would not even be breathing at this moment. But in your goodness, in your love, you've allowed us to live here in this city, to be a part of this church, to be a part of this community for a reason. It's not just to amass more wealth or popularity or whatever it might be. Lord, you want us to make an impact for your kingdom so that your kingdom would be strengthened. Lord, we desire that you would use us. We promise that we won't take any of the credit for ourselves. We promise that it will not be about First Baptist Church Decatur. It won't be about the staff or the deacons. It will be all about you. We pray for revival. We can't orchestrate it, but your spirit can send it. All across this room, I pray that the Holy Spirit would burden our hearts to pray for the lost. That we'd be broken over our sins and that we would put our lives in proper perspective and live in the light of eternity. Would you move even now? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.